you have your Bibles with you, open them up and we'll start with the First uh, Peter, the third chapter. We'll move to several other places. For uh, some weeks in our study, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and on Wednesday, and in lessons where we talk about the country that we live in and our effort to promote Christianity in this country, we've talked about how that unbelief is on the rise in our own society, in our own country, that there are, there may be more Christians in number, people that call themselves Christians now than there were some years back. And of course the population has gone up and that would lead to more in number. But as a percentage of the population, conservative Christians represent a much smaller percentage of our population now than at the turn of the century. And that the influence of Christianity in our society is less uh, than it has been in the past. We've noted that when looking at uh, the media, whether it's the newspapers, uh, TV, movies, magazines, uh, that uh, this, these materials that communicate with people, the majority by all polls that I have read from, whether it's different Gallup polls or, or other individual polls or church polls, all of them are, are in agreement that uh, the media itself represents a very high percentage or has a representation of a high percentage of their workers in the unbelief category. I think one survey I was reading that was in the American Family Association uh, dealt with all of the, the news people, uh, the people that are involved in programs like 2020, 60 Minutes, Prime Time, The Daily News, and all these various uh, news type programs and then also the people that make the various movies and all for your, uh, that we see on TV and, and that are propagated in the movie realm. And they pointed out that about 83% of them very seldom ever go to church anywhere. That religion is not even a, a part of their life. And that for over half of them, uh, the morality of the Bible would have no meaning to them. They would even disagree uh, very strongly with it. And of course, these people are are involved in putting out the materials that is influencing so many people. And so our society is becoming more and more pagan. It's, it's still headed in that direction. Uh, they talk about turning the tide and things of that nature and, and the moral majority. I, I don't believe the moral group is the majority. Uh, I can't see the tide being turned. When I look at uh, AIDS in our society, when I, when I look at the uh, welfare rose and the, as a result of more and more uh, young people that are having babies out of wedlock. A new statistic just come out on the news Friday and said in Tennessee there's a greater percentage of young girls unmarried between 15 and 17 giving birth to babies than ever before. And it, it's, it's higher than the last time uh, that it was taken. And so when we look at all these things the constant uh, seeming dishonesty in government programs, uh, uh, the things like the savings and loan scandal, and, and we wonder, you know, how much more can our society take before it, it just crumbles? And we do know it is becoming more and more pagan. We see less and less of Christian influence in the world. We'd like to deal with some questions as to why the increase of unbelief in our society 
And today I would like to deal with it only from the standpoint of, of the Christian. And then the next lesson, look at, the, at it from the standpoint of the world. But I'd like to look at the question of, of why unbelief is going up in our society from the standpoint of, of you and I as, as Christians and, and the part that we play. And I believe personally that uh, people who profess Christians play a tremendous fact, a tremendous part uh, in the unbelief that is increasing and has been in our society. In the third chapter of 1 Peter, we have this statement, uh, Peter writing to uh, Christian wives. He speaks to the husbands right after, but I just want this statement here to the wives to get a principle. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that any of them do not believe the word. They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way that holy women in the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, etc. Right, the only point I want out of this, because I'm not interested in speaking to wives in this lesson any more than husbands or, or children or anyone else, but the fact that uh, the truthfulness of the Christian way is expressed in the lives of people who profess it. And in here he gives an example that, that a woman could actually be married to an unbelieving husband who has not yet responded to preaching but can be made to rethink the entire situation and change his attitude because of what he sees in the behavior of his life. And I'm not saying that can convert a person, and Peter's not saying that. And he, go, he's, he makes another statement a little farther down that shows that he doesn't think that's going to completely convert a person. But that it can be a part in leading that individual, causing them to look with favor upon Christianity, and that looking with favor on it and wanting to know more about it and being led in that direction can eventually culminate in their becoming a Christian. Well, in the same vein, over here another passage you're familiar with in Matthew, the fifth chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 13, Matthew 5 and beginning in verse 13. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And then he goes ahead to talk about the law against murder, against adultery, divorce, the attitude of an eye for an eye, and other love and things of this nature. In other words, it makes it very clear that you have a total, that the people of this day have a total misunderstanding of Jesus if they think that he has come to just do away with law and there wasn't going to be any more commands and, and morality, a lack of morality would not have a price to pay. He makes it very clear that if anything, his interpretation of the law was far deeper than the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day. It got right into the heart uh, so far as the, the actual meaning of the law itself. The point is, the, he said that his followers were to be the light of the world. They were to be the salt of the earth. Well, we know what salt is. It's the, we, we use salt as a preservative. It has a saving quality. It can keep things from spoiling. Uh, we know the value of a candle to give light in a dark room. That nobody lights a candle in a dark room and then hides it. They put it out so they can give light to everybody. And so in this, he's saying to the disciples that you, my disciples... You are the salt of the earth. You're the saving quality. Uh, without you, it's going to be destroyed. You're the saving quality. You are the light of the world. And by looking at you, others will see certain things that will cause them to glorify your Father in heaven. And then he went on to state that you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth to the extent that you adhere to those commandments and you hold to them and people can see their effect in your life. And of course, Peter's uh, dealing specifically over in 1 Peter, the third chapter, with the wife and saying that by a certain type of behavior, the effect of the word in their life, uh, he can see the truthfulness of that way and the end result can culminate in his becoming a Christian. One of the greatest things that Christianity had going for it in the first century was the lives of the adherents. Keep in mind, in the first century, there were no second-generation Christians. There, there were no Christians that were believers just simply because that they had been brought up by parents who were believers or they were in a believing society. They all came to the gospel from unbelief because they had been fully convinced it was true. And we had individuals who changed their entire way of life as a result of embracing this system. Uh, the great Paul, at uh, one time a Pharisee, uh, strived so hard to emulate Jesus in his life that he makes a statement for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Uh, in writing to the Colossians, he makes it clear that the ultimate, so far as a Christian is concerned, is reaching the point where he maturely and perfectly emulates Christ in his life. Paul would make statements like, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Uh, the end result of all of his teaching was Christ in us. That ought to be the goal of a Christian. You can read volumes of material by the early church father and in, in the second century of pagans that were uh, converted to Christianity and one of the first turn-ons to them was the look at the Christian life and the Christian system and the way that it actually worked in contrast to that pagan environment. Now, said all that to say this, I believe that Christians as a whole are a big part of the unbelief in our society because somewhere along the line, 
as a body of people, I'm not saying that there's not individuals or individual sections, it's not, but as a body of people, we quit emphasizing and teaching that the ultimate of Christianity is the emulation of Jesus in your life. Uh, somewhere along the line that we have embraced materialism and worldliness and ungodliness and yet at the same time we want Jesus as Savior and so the church is holding up Jesus as Savior but they're not holding him up as Master. And so the end result is they talk about him as their Savior but as a body of people we've got too many running around showing nothing to the world that there's anything attractive about that way of life. Nothing to lead them to believe that it may be true. The other night, I watched the, we laid in bed, and I watched the news, and, and then there was a, something came on after the news, and I watched about 15 minutes of that, and uh, the, the word that caught my mind was this comedian uh, who was uh, being interviewed, and he had just made fun of Christianity. Uh, as part of his comic routine, he had made fun of Christianity. And so I was curious to, you know, and they, they started interviewing. And then, as I listened to him, I thought, well, I can understand where that guy's coming from. Here's, uh, so this is not, I can't remember exactly, but some of what he says, he said, I absolutely despise Jimmy Swagger. I hate him. I can't stand the man. He said, he makes me sick in my stomach. And then he began to mock Jimmy as he cried on TV. He says, how many, and of course he referred to the latest episode where Jimmy was caught with a prostitute. Of course, we all know about the episode before that and, the, and how many other times he hadn't been caught. He says, how many times does that guy have to get caught before they see what he is? And here he is still preaching to the big church and on TV and everything like that. And I thought, man, put yourself in the world as somebody who's not been brought up by a Christian family. And uh, you're not a student of the Bible, but you're observant. And, and, and you look at somebody like Jimmy Swagger and Jim and Tammy, and they are representing Christianity. And, and you know it's not just them because they get millions and millions of dollars from who? People who believe that they're truly representing Christianity. So obviously there's a lot of so-called Christians that believe they're doing a good job of it because they're getting millions and millions of dollars for people that believe they're accurately representing Christianity, and there they are. Not only in a life that is worldly and materialistic and greedy, but a life that's immoral. Um, when I read the uh, material concerning Ted Turner after he was being criticized by uh, Christians for some very strong statements he made against Christianity, and then in this article it pointed out that it, he was brought up uh, in a Christian background and that actually came to be an unbeliever from a Christian background. And I looked at his reasons against Christianity and all of them had to do either with the lives of professing Christians or with what you and I would believe was misinterpretations of the Bible. And he winds up as somebody that he said got saved seven times along the way and winds up an unbeliever because of his experience with what was professing Christianity. The life that Christians live in their home, in the community, and wherever you go, and that, this is all Christians, has more to do with what unbelievers out there think about Christianity and whether they're going to consider it in a favorable light and want to examine it 
than probably anything else that we could ever say. I mean, that people make claims all the time, don't they? They get on the, uh, on the tube and they say, this is the best car. And somebody else says, this is the best car. And, and somebody says, this is the best whatever. People are always making claims. But we look for the proof of the pudding. Uh, and, and, and so we, we want to see what actually works. And so it is with Christianity. It, it does no good to make claims or to tell people about a salvation and a hope that they can have in Christ and that he's the answer to the problems and all, as long as they can look around them and see so many professing Christians who are so unsuccessful with their lives and are definitely not a light in the society. It also helps you to appreciate something we talked a little bit about last week. How important it is within the church that you practice church discipline and fellowship in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament. Uh, in our past, and not only us, other groups also, we have been more concerned when it comes to fellowship about individuals agreeing with us on every single interpretation of every doctrine. Even though they may live ungodly lives or be worldly, we've been more concerned about that aspect than we have about their life. We, we have been willing to disfellowship and not recognize individuals who we knew were living godly lives because they differed with us on some interpretation of doctrine. And then on the other hand, recognize people that were obviously worldly or immoral because they agreed on some particular point of doctrine. We can all grow in our knowledge and understanding of doctrines all our life. And there's room for all of us to change on anything we might be wrong on. And do you know anybody out there in the world can understand my misinterpretation or my misunderstanding some particular doctrine? And they can understand your misunderstanding it. And any Christian can understand. We know that you have to study and that and sometimes you make a wrong decision because you have a misunderstanding of some fact or you don't have some fact. What is very difficult to understand is people claiming to believe something that they do understand and living the exact opposite. And other people who claim to believe it, ignoring it, fellowshipping them, laughing with them, having a good time, and all the time they wallow in the dirt and drag the Lord's name. And, and here is the people supporting Jimmy Swagger. And here is a guy, who, obviously an unbeliever, looking at him as representative of Christianity and saying, I hate that guy. I don't think there's too many things that turn off individuals other than hypocrisy. Uh, even Hitler was not a hypocrite. He was, he was a bad person. But he never claimed to be anything more than an atheist. He was not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody that claims to be something when in reality they're not. And so one of the reasons, I think, is the lives of professing, and you and I need to constantly be cognizant of the fact that we represent Christ out here. And when you're in the grocery store or the, or the, su the supermarket or the, uh, uh, one of the retail stores or the gas station or where, and even if you think some little thing has been done wrong, before you flare up and become rude with somebody or have a nasty spirit, you need to re remember that you are representing Christ. And when people offend us out there, before we 
tackle them in the strongest way. We need to remember we do represent Christ. And that for those, and, and not many of my are reading the Bible. You see, you and I can keep our faith even though there's ungodliness in the church and even though we have professing Christians who live this way and all. We keep our faith because we have read the Bible. And our faith goes beyond just the individual lives. Not only that, we have been blessed with having had contact over the years with any number of people that did live Christianity and we could see the benefits of it in their life and in their family. But many of these people haven't had that experience. And they haven't had the experience with the Bible. And they, they're going to have to have something to motivate them to want to pick it up and learn something about it in the first place. And so we do a great service for Christianity to the extent we're willing to stand up in our own lives, in our own families, and not only stand up in your own person, but don't condone immorality or ungodliness or worldliness among other professing Christians, no matter who they are and how close they may be. It's a disservice to Christ and to the church. Another area that has caused unbelief through the years, uh, I was reading the article by Clayton uh, this week. He had a very, I don't know how many of you get the publication, but he generally has a very good one. The one come out this week uh, was very good. And one of the things he was pointing out is the, the unbelief that has been caused during the years uh, because of Christians' uh, interpretation of doctrines that maybe were inaccurate, but yet they forced them on other people no matter what the facts. And he gives an example uh, going back to the days of Galileo uh, between science and, uh, and the Bible. Copernicus theorized that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the solar system. And that the solar system itself is just a small part of the universe. That was a theory of Copernicus. It was not proven. At the time that he uttered that theory, the vast majority of the thinkers believed that the earth was the center of the system. And it had been postulated by Aristotle, and the early Christian church in the first few centuries embraced this statement by Aristotle because it fit perfectly, they thought, with their Christian doctrine. And so here is something that has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing to do with the way you live your life. Nothing to do with your trust in Jesus. But it, it, this interpretation became a church doctrine. So then Copernicus comes up with this theory, and then Galileo puts the theory to the test. And he proves that Copernicus was right. That the sun is the center of the solar system and not the earth. That the earth is simply a planet that revolves around the sun. What harm? Enlightenment, really, in the field of science. What happened to Galileo? Disfellowshipped, banished, put down. Even people like John Wesley, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, some of those big names outside of the Catholic Church had real strong statements about this, heret this ungodly heretic. By the way, Galileo was a strong believer in God, strong believer in the Bible. And so through science, he has proven something that flew in the face of an interpretation that started out with Aristotle, was picked up by the Christian church because they liked it. 
and they had held onto it and began to teach it as a matter of church doctrine. And do you know you could not have been in fellowship with either Protestant churches or the Catholic church in that day had you embraced what Galileo said? If you believed it, you had to keep your mouth shut or you'd be branded as a heretic and kicked out of the church. Well, over the years, there have been any number of times where the church or people professing Christianity had an interpretation of some particular doctrine and they forced that interpretation of those doctrines on anybody who wanted to be in fellowship with them. Well, there have been a number of times when the church has had erroneous interpretations. And there have been a number of times when the facts of science exploded some particular interpretation. A recent one that we're dealing with uh, was Bishop Usher in the 16th century uh, pointing out that the earth tracing the chronological uh, record in the Bible and coming to the conclusion that the earth is 6,000 years old. And so then the church began to teach it was that Adam, you know, was created 4004 B.C. and we had all of this even in our Bible for many years. And to this day, there are Christians who make as a matter of faith you're agreeing with them that the earth is 6,000 years of age. Well, the problem is that uh, all available scientific evidence is that our universe and the earth has been around a long time, more than 6,000 years. All evidence. So then here you have individuals who actually are turned on by Jesus and turned on by the, his sacrifice and his life and all, but then sometimes find themselves in a group that wants to force them to believe something that they cannot believe in light of the evidence that they have. Well, how ever old the earth is, whether it's 6,000, 10,000, or, or so many million, or the universe is so many billion, where is the conflict within the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And we began to have the situation form in the, in the way that we have it now. Where is any statement of time? Where does it say that 6,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or whatever that God created the heavens and the earth? In fact, the purpose of Genesis was not to tell how God did it. It was to tell that God did it and that man is made in the image of God. And he is the ultimate of God's creation. And Moses is letting those Jews know that they were coming out of Egypt. That the God that has delivered you from Egypt is the creator of the universe. He created the heavens and the earth. That's the God you serve. And the problem of the world is sin. Let's go back there and look at it in Genesis. So his message is revealing that God did it. Where we've got these problems because of sin, but even back there, God made a promise that from the seed of woman, that one would come and conquer Satan. And we can follow this promise. What do you think that Moses knew about atoms, or molecules, or bacteria, or viruses, 
or whether the sun or the uh, earth was the center of the solar system, or how old the universe was. I doubt that he knew anywhere near as much as we know. They didn't even think that way. He looked at the creation as evidence of the creator. So there's nothing there that flies in the face of anything, but again, an interpretation bound as fact in order to have fellowship. And so now you pick up encyclopedias, and what you have is when they give the so-called facts of evolution. On the one hand, you've got scientists who are coming on strong about things that they can't prove, but on the other hand, instead of just quoting the Bible, the Bible is represented by the interpretation of theologians down through the century, and many times their interpretation is it varies with the facts, just as many times the scientists' interpretation is it varies with the facts. Suffice it to say, trying to study and come to an accurate understanding of, of the doctrines of the Bible is important. It's nothing to be pushed aside or relegated or said it's not important. But on the other hand, we can see the danger when, when you study something and you come up with interpretation, we can see the danger of binding something as dogmatic law on other people when you're dealing with something that you really can't prove one way or the other. And it is your interpretation of, of that particular point. Salvation and fellowship in the early church was predicated on belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Repentance of sin, placing one's trust in him, being immersed in him in a way that depicted his death, burial, and resurrection, and then recognized as a babe in Christ that would then grow and mature in knowledge and understanding for the rest of his life. And from within that realm, the ultimate goal was Christ in every one of them. Paul said that is the great mystery of the gospel, Christ in us. Uh, the thing that uh, the old law, God stated what was right. In the new covenant, he dwelt in flesh and lived. The emphasis in the New Testament is on becoming a Christian and living a Christ-like life and being a light in the society that we live in. And that's more important than being right or wrong on some of the doctrines that people fuss and fight about so much. Not saying it's not important to study and be right on them. We just looked at the fact that it is important to study and to accurately represent the Bible. But the reliving of Christ within our lives and the standing up for that morality in your own family and in the church and for those principles in the world that is the way that we are a light and we beckon to others to examine the good news of salvation in Christ. And then when they come to Christ, we need to make sure that we, through some interpretation of ours that may or may not be right, do not hinder them from entering the blood of Christ and getting the remission of their sins and then being able to grow and mature for the rest of their life. When we talk about the unbelief in our society, we need to first start looking at ourselves, Christians as a whole, as a body of people. And, and the way that we stand when it comes to godliness of life, when it comes to really studying and trying to understand the, the doctrines of the Bible and to the emulation of Jesus in our life. Let's conclude our study. If you're in our audience as one that is not a Christian, 
God loves you. Jesus died for you. When you want to look at a life that represents Christianity, don't pick a Jimmy Swaggart or a Jim and Tammy. Pick somebody out there that honestly believes the material and is living it and look at that life and look at that family in contrast with those in the society that you live that are not trying to walk by those principles. And then having looked at that, look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and for his deity. We believe the evidence will stand in any honest mind that's willing to consider it. If you're not a Christian and desire to respond, you have the opportunity as together we stand and say.